Welcome to Fifth Wall's Fly on the Wall podcast, where we explore the shifts occurring in real estate, technology, and society that are driving our cities towards a more equitable, green, and tech-enabled future. I'm your host, Brendan Wallace. In today's episode, I sit down with International Council of Shopping Centers CEO, Tom McGee, to discuss the current state of the retail industry. Tom shares detail around the acceleration of trends which have occurred throughout the pandemic, the solvency and durability of major retailers, evolving lease structures, and restarting the equity and debt capital markets for retailers. Enjoy the conversation. Tom, thank you so much for joining. Um, I'm really looking forward to hearing your insights um, just about how the retail industry broadly, landlords and tenants, is going to be impacted by you know, the state of the world right now. Um, but just to start, can you give us your background and maybe a little context on what ICSC is and what its mission is? Sure. Uh, well, first of all, um, I am a Southern California native uh, who now lives on the, on the East Coast, a hardcore uh, Los Angelino sports fan, a big Laker fan, uh, born and raised there, uh, daughters are born there. My wife was born in California as well. I, I was a partner at Deloitte uh, for many years. I moved to the East Coast for Deloitte in 2007. I then retired from Deloitte and uh, transitioned to the CEO role at ICSC in 2015 uh, and have been there ever since. I, I, um, ICSC is the Global Trade Association for the retail real estate industry. Uh, we advocate for the industry in Washington, D.C. and state houses across the country, but also provide a host of services for our members. And we're most well known for our large deal making uh, and networking conferences, uh, unfortunately, all of which have been you know, canceled or postponed this year because of uh, the pandemic. Uh, but our largest uh, flagship show is Recon, which is every year in Las Vegas, uh, the last weekend in May. Uh, 30,000 plus people. Uh, we have a number of other deal-making shows that are anywhere from five to 10,000 people uh, across the United States. And we really bring uh, landlords, tenants, uh, financial service providers, real estate services providers, venture capitalists, um, anyone that's interested in retail and particularly retail real estate together um, to focus upon what's the future of the industry and also to help them facilitate their business and transactions. And uh, I'm a big believer in the importance of this industry, um, both as it relates to the economy, it's an enormous part of the US economy, really the global economy. There's about $6.2 trillion of consumer activity that flows through retail real estate every year uh, through food and beverage and retail and entertainment. Uh, and it, we're also the largest source of uh, sales and uh, local taxes for communities across uh, across the country. About $400 billion of uh, state and local taxes are generated by the industry every year, which is the largest source of funds uh, of any industry uh, in the country. And one in four jobs, of course, is retail related. And, you know, as retail goes in a consumer driven economy like the U.S., so goes the U.S. economy. Uh, and and obviously there's some challenges now given what's happening in the world. And, you know, in, in thinking about an industry like retail, which 
is so multifaceted, meaning the, the, the number of constituents in that ecosystem is so broad. And you've seen a lot of crises, I'm sure, before um, yeah. active retail. What is unique and more complicated about what's happening right now in the retail yeah. ecosystem? Yeah, I think, first of all, in my professional career, um, this is by far the the most significant crisis. Um, you know, I think the, you know, the Great Recession was obviously a significant crisis and was a financial crisis uh, at its core. I mean, a banking crisis at its core. Um, you know, obviously 2001, September 11th, created a lot of um, challenges in our country and the economy. But nothing has been as, as widespread uh, as this. I mean, we fundamentally shut down the U.S. economy. Quite frankly, we fundamentally shut down the global economy and all of the aspects of that. And so um, I like to say where, you know, the Great Recession impacted a lot of people in the business community. There were a lot of people that weren't directly impacted by the Great Recession. And, and while as a U.S. citizen, we were all impacted by 9-11 in, in an emotional way and um, and in a very real way, it didn't economically impact us all and the dot-com bust as well before that. This impacted almost everybody in some way, right? I mean, we're sitting at home or we're, we're talking to each other over a computer. That's impacting. You know, I have a beard. I didn't have a beard before. So, um, I mean, it impacts, it's impacted every citizen in some way, from the smallest child to uh, the oldest uh, adult. And then business in every way, and our industry in particular, uh, because we are our model is based upon bringing people together in a physical setting. Um, you know, was very very disrupted by uh, by this, and and I think the implications of what has happened, um, you know, are won't be over just as we lift, you know, restrictions and shelter in place orders and so forth and reopen the economy. I think that brings a whole nother phase of challenges. Um, if you're at 25% capacity or 50% capacity, but you have 100% of your costs or 80% of your costs, I mean, you've got to think through the business model and you have to think obviously about complexities of keeping, you know, your customers safe and your tenants safe. And you also you know, have to recognize that the world changed over the last three to four months. We've become accustomed to using technology uh, and business models were adjusted as a result of that too. And so I think there's a, the tail on this is going to be quite long and it's, you know, it's not just we a switch gets turned on and we reopen the economy again. And yes, the stock market is looking great and so forth. I think the consequences of this, um, will be you know will be dramatic and some will be positive in the long run too because uh, we pushed really a decade of trends through a funnel in three or four months and out came a new industry uh, right. the other end. and and i'm curious like you know when you look at um an industry like retail that where there's so many dependencies on one thing happening which is the american consumer entering a store, entering a restaurant, taking yeah. out credit card or cash, right? Like that, that, that is where it has to start, right? And then, you know, beneath that, you have the landlords, you have the, uh, all the underlying mortgages, you have the property taxes, you have the supply chain, um, you have the, the, the local labor economies that are built around that. It, how do you conceptualize restarting this, right? And, and I, I guess what I'm asking is, 
Is it something where you really has to start with the retailer first, right? Because the, the solvency and the longevity and the durability of these retailers right now is what everything kind of hinges on. Is, is that the frame you're looking at it through? Well, I mean, I, th I think, yes, but I think, I, I do think what you said to start is probably the most important one, which is what's the mind of the consumer, right? I mean, it all depends upon people feeling comfortable getting out of their living room and leaving their home and going to a store or going to a restaurant. Um, and so I think that to me will be the first sign. Are people, you know, what's what's the traffic look like? What's the foot traffic look like? Are people showing a willingness to do that? You know, and the early signs on that are, are actually, you know, encouraging. You know, people are are showing a willingness to uh, to go back out now different, you know, people are wearing face masks and obviously, you know, more intensely perhaps in the Northeast and in California where, you know, the cases were more, um, were more intense, but we are seeing people go out and Vegas opened up, you know, just within the last week and there were pretty good crowds there too. So that inherent need to socialize and be together with folks, I think is there. And I would start with that. Um, I think that the retailer and, and quite frankly, the shopping center needs to do a lot to, you know, encourage that. The first and foremost is safety, obviously, mm -hmm. and making sure there's the right, you know, safety precautions in place. And that varies whether you're in an open air center or a mall and, and indoor mall, et cetera. And I think the industry is doing a responsible job in that regard. And there's a lot of protocols in place. And the retailer has to make sure that they, you know, the customer feels safe when they're in there. And you're seeing that with, you know, arrows on the ground, you know, which, which aisles go north, south, and, and, and south, north, and et cetera. Um, you know, sanitizing equipment and hand sanitizers and so forth, six feet apart. So I think all of that's in place. Um, but, you know, I, I really believe at the end of the day, you know, when we get past that stuff, which, you know, hopefully at some point we will get past. I mean, there will be a vaccine and, and we will move on COVID-19. The winning retailers will still be those that create a great experience for their customers, um, have great merchandise. And, and clearly what this, you know, situation has proven to us is that those retailers that truly are omni-channel in nature, you know, that, you know, have, they have a digital presence and a physical presence. They learn to leverage them very effectively. And you see that with the Walmarts and the Targets of the world and what they've been able to do. You see that now with curbside pickup and how that's become just integrated into the way people shop. I don't think that goes away. You know, I don't think it goes away. It may, it may become less um, intense or, or dominant, but it's still going to be there because people become accustomed to it. And I really do believe the, the winning the winning retailers are those that are going to have a you know a world class physical presence and a world class digital presence. One of the things that I think the you know that was proven um, over the course of the last three to four months is the challenges of the last mile and how important that store was to solving that last mile challenge. Right? I mean, you saw huge growth in in e commerce in Walmart and Target but you also saw huge growth in their in-store sales too. And they were using that, um, those stores as kind of the last mile distribution center. I think you're going to see a lot more of that as well. And there's been a lot of talk about, you know, the, 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 the some of the negatives, right? The, the, the obvious moments of bankruptcy, right? Or, or kind of the financial struggles that 
some particularly overstored, uh, over um, over levered retailers have faced. In, in many ways, it kind of accelerated problems that were yeah. uh, we were already confronting, or the retail industry was already confronting. To what extent do you see what, what's happening right now as as an opportunity for yeah. landlords to reconstitute, um, recurate what the center what a retail center might look like with new brands, with more omnichannel brands, with more experiential retail. Um, is that a big opportunity that you're seeing in the market right now? Yeah, I think it's, I think that was happening before this. You mean, you obviously, you know, the department store uh, sector in particular was having, you know, some, some challenges and, and those have been, you know, I think accelerated. Um, and so I think that uh, clearly, the move towards curation and mix in a shopping center, moving towards more experiential, and is is upon us and will continue to accelerate. I so I do I do think so. Yeah, no, I think it represents an opportunity. It's also a challenge. So let's face facts. I mean, there's a lot of capital involved in that, and you know you you have to sequence it appropriately and have to have the capital ready to invest to do that. Um, and those you know it's a free market capitalistic society, those that are able to react quickly will, you know, be the most success, most successful in that environment. But I, I do think back to what I was saying, I mean, there was like a decade and, and maybe it's not a day, maybe it's eight years, I don't know, five years, maybe it's nine, I don't know, but a lot of change got pushed through and accelerated in a short period of time. And, and I think that it, uh, it's really now as we reopen, the consequences of those changes and the fallout from that will become very um, obvious over the course of the next six to, to 12 months. And, um, and, and, but I do think it's an opportunity, but it's also a risk. I mean, let's be honest though. So. And, and there's two other interesting variables that, that I've been thinking a lot about. I'm curious to get your take on one is, you know, for a lot of these emerging new omnichannel retailers, um, it's hard to pay fixed rent in the way that a, you know, historical retailer would, um, because they're they're less familiar. It's oftentimes they're one of their first ten stores they're opening, and they they kind of view it seems almost rent as a cost of customer acquisition, and so they almost want to lock in that cost as a percent of sales. So one has been the shift towards percent rent for these emerging new retailers, and the second dynamic is that. You know, in the same way, um, it seemed like the 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 original incarnation of the shopping center was you had the anchors that kind of drew the foot traffic, and then you monetized that space with the inline stores, and that's inflected somewhat, um, where it's the inline stores that are that are now the main draws, and it would seem that that might favor the more command and control environments of a mall, right, where you can really curate that mix of stores far more so than you can in high street retail, right? Where ownership of the retail assets is oftentimes not the same. And so you, it's harder to just coordinate across different owners. So I guess two questions. One is, do you think we'll see a shift towards more percent rent? And the second thing is, do you think this is asymmetrically harder for high street retailers to resolve than it is for um, a center owner that can actually command and control the retail environment? You know, the answer to your first question is I, I, I think uh, obviously that trend had begun um, before this. And I, I do think there'll continue to be, you know, a lot of dialogue around percentage rent. And I think that will vary by landlord and retailer and, and 
But I do think that that is a trend that is irrefutable, that that conversation is going to happen. Um, I don't know that that's always the best answer for the retailer, and I don't know that it's always the best answer for the landlord. I think it depends, and it's fact-specific. It is interesting, you know, you mentioned, you know, customer acquisition costs. I mean, one of the things, and you clearly understand this, I mean, the cost of customer acquisition in a pure e-commerce only model is generally a lot more significant than it is in a physical model. I mean, because of the, you know, it's a much more efficient, uh, cost-effective model to be, you know, to have a physical network of stores. And that's so, and that's so counterintuitive, right? Like yeah, that, most absolutely. people in, certainly we see this in the venture capital world that most people think that, oh, it's just, it's cheaper to acquire customers online. When in fact, if you really look at an equivalency between rent as acquiring customers offline and online customer acquisition costs as your online marketing costs, we've hit this inflection point where it is now fundamentally cheaper to acquire customers offline. And we still have the dynamic where between 85 and 90% of US sales are happening offline. So it's both cheaper and, and larger. And that's usually very more surprising to a lot and of more efficient. And it's also, I mean, a store by nature is an incredibly efficient marketing vehicle too, right? We found, uh, we did a, a study called the Halo Report that looked at, you know, the consequences of having a store and what that meant to your online traffic and not having a store in that geographic area and what happened to your online traffic. And in every situation where a retailer opened up a store, in a certain geographic area, their online traffic grew in that area, and obviously they had the sales from the store. When they closed a store, in every single situation, their online traffic in that same geography went down, and obviously they lost the sales to the store. Now it varied by sector and by you know retail type, but generally it was about a third. I mean, the relationship was about a 30% relationship. Two so thirds, it was two thirds online, one third online. No, if you opened up a store, so if you opened up a new store in a geographic area, that your online traffic in that geographic area, your purchases from sales from that geographic area that were online from customers in that area, when it grew by 30, 30 actually the actual percentage is 37%. When you closed a store in that geographic area, so somebody, a retailer decided to close the store, that their, that their sales in that geographic area, that zip code, that million person, two million person area, went down by about a third as well. So there was a, you know, it was a positive marketing aspect to having the store for your online presence, as well as obviously the pull through of having the store and what you're going to do in this. In this. And have you seen creative ways where landlords have looked to capture that, right? I mean, that's, that's a benefit of having a store, that a store is, you know, it's a marketing asset as well as a direct sales asset. Have, have you seen landlords creatively looking at lease structures to capture some of that or align interests um, with new omnichannel brands? Yeah, I think there's conversations around that, but there's not a template that's consistent across the industry. In that there's no I think that, that everyone agrees on. Yeah, everybody agrees on. I mean, obviously, you have competing interests around that, and there's you know different viewpoints around it. But it's it's certainly it's certainly a discussion that's taking place, and what's the fairest you know leasing model to put in place. Your, your second question is a quite interesting one in regards to just high street and, and street retail. First of all, I think open air, you know, an open air shopping center, so not classic street retail, what you were asking. But you know, we those were doing quite well before the pandemic, and quite frankly, you know, particularly those that had a lot of essential retail, you know, have weathered this fairly well. Um, 
And I think we're probably emerged to, um, you know, with challenges around small tenants and restaurants and those kinds of things, which are obvious, you know, are probably in a position as a sector as a whole to emerge from this in a, in a, you know, in a reasonably strong position. Um, High Street's interesting because of the, you know, just the, what will the predictions around people moving out of urban centers really happen and people moving back into the suburbs. And generally as an in, as a, as a retail industry um, for shopping centers, whether that's enclosed malls or, you know, grocery anchored neighborhood centers and everything in between, a move to the suburbs is usually a positive thing for the industry because that's, there's a lot of retail out there and we saw, you know, you know, not as much growth in the in the suburbs over the last decade, and we're starting to see signs of it growing again. And so that could be quite positive, particularly as the millennials have kids and want more space, and now they realize working at home and not commuting into the city is kind of a nice quality of life. Thing. So to me, the so that'll be interesting. Just that you know happens, and and people really do move out to the suburbs, and so my own suspicion is it will that you will see people move out to the suburbs because of the pandemic and the lessons from that and more people working from home, but also quite frankly, millennials were starting to have kids, although later they were starting to have kids and school age children and they move out to the suburbs because of schools and so forth. They didn't, they haven't, their behaviors were very much similar to what their parents' behavior were, was although later in life than that. So I do think you're going to see growth in, in the suburbs. And what does that mean, you know, for the urban centers? And does that, you know, in some way um, negatively impact, you know, urban real estate? I think that'll depend. I mean, I, you know, I, I think the thought of getting on, you know, a ass transit back into commuting into, you know, the major cities of the country is still quite worrisome for a lot of people. So I, to me, it's less about the curation mix and it's more about just people's safety and what is their appetite going to be? And are they going to want to commute into, New York and Chicago, et cetera, using public transportation. I, I don't know because you know, we have that hasn't really been tested yet. Right. Yeah. I mean, the 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 relative impact on cities for suburbs, right, is, is something I feel like we've been oscillating around for a while around how technology trends either instigate that or mitigate that, and it's it's hard to really know. But I think what I do feel confident is the volatility. And that could be city specific. Is just going to. Yeah. Um, I think there'll be some cities where it will concentrate, and there'll be some where it won't. But it, I, I wanted to ask. Sorry, go ahead, Tom. I was just going to say one thing that I do think, and because we did a lot of studies on this, you know, pre-COVID nineteen pandemic, and just the behavioral patterns of of people as they got to certain life stages, and and the millennial generation, there was a, so much. Um, you know, conversation around them living differently than their parents did. They wanted to live in city centers. They didn't want to live out in the suburbs. And of course they got married later. They had kids later. They bought homes later. And those are, those events particularly are really important because those life events stimulate consumer demand and particularly the having the kids part. And as, as what we saw is that as millennial, uh, millennials, kids, the kids of millennials reach school age, there was a high motivation to move out to the suburbs because of, you know, access to schools. And, and I suspect that as, you know, the oldest millennial is still only like 39 years old as they, as they move into, you know, their prime 
family raising years that you're going to see you know, more and more people move out to the suburbs and that will only be accentuated by the events of the last you know months yeah and that has implications for other forms of real estate too you know office real estate and so forth i think i'm the oldest millennial i'm i'm or one of the oldest millennials i'm i'm 38 and there you go you know, I'm, I was in Los Angeles in February and now I'm in Park City, Utah. So probably not too much to read into that, but I would be shocked <laughs> if I was alone in, in that transition. Um, I wanted to ask you about um, the COVID-19 recovery fund. Obviously ICSE took out, I, I think, what is its first uh, ad to highlight this crisis, its impact on retail. Um, but I'm curious, what is the fund and what is the mandate behind it? Can you kind of talk through that? So we, we uh, launched our first national television advertising campaign. And, you know, the, the focus of it was, was the, first of all, highlight our industry and the importance of our industry and the impact this is all having upon this industry and, and the communities in which we serve. And I mentioned some of the stats at the start, you know, one in four jobs, $400 billion of you know, state and local taxes, uh, et cetera. You know, at the start of this, you know, as we um, brought members together, leaders in the industry together, it was very clear that this was going to have a dramatic impact upon our industry, the shelter in place orders, the health and safety actions taken, which we, which nobody disagreed were appropriate, but that it was going to have a huge impact on our industry. And quite frankly, on the U.S. economy as a whole, right? It was just going to have a cascading impact. And we believe in the very first um, advocacy uh, request we made from uh, Congress and, and a letter that I wrote to Congress and to the White House, we uh, asked that, that the government fund a business interruption fund, that, you know, that the government took actions to close the economy, that there needed to be a continuity of payment and cash flow and that the government needed to lean in and provide some help with ongoing business expenses. And is that just, a, is that to retailers or is that to landlords as well? That you At were... the time we, that was to every retailer landlord. And we said it should be open to all industries and all businesses that could demonstrate they were impaired as a result of COVID-19. And, and that's we recognized there would be above and beyond payroll protection. Above and beyond payroll protection. And um, obviously, the CARES Act got implemented. We thought that was a, you know, that was a good first step. But we still believe there's more that needs to get done. And, and I believe that even as the economy begins to reopen, and even though we had a positive jobs report last Friday, that the tail on this challenge is going to be significant. And we have built a coalition of about 100 different uh, organizations all across the U.S. economy, different industries. Um, different regions that support this concept of a recovery fund. And the basic concept of a recovery fund is that if your business has been impaired as a result of COVID-19, that the government, and you can prove it and demonstrate it and provide documentation to the government, that they should lean in and provide some support for your ongoing operating expenses during this period of time. Um, we have had a number of different um, proposals that have you know, emerged from Congress, some of which haven't gone anywhere, some of which are, um, you know, promising. Uh, there's one called the Restart uh, Program, which fundamentally what I just described, which is a program that is bipartisan in nature from Senator uh, Bennett and Senator Young. 
that um, would provide support for ongoing operating expenses for companies that generally are with our 5,000 or less employees um, that can demonstrate that they were impaired uh, by COVID-19. But there's a cap on that particular one of around $12 million of, of relief. We think the number ought to be bigger than that. We think it ought to be applied to more companies. Um, but the concept is one of, look, the, the to emerge from this, that what to close your business for three months, to uh, emerge from this, have to replenish inventory, have to, um, in many cases, you know, support tenants, find new tenants in our industry specifically, as a result of a government action, although an appropriate one, that they have a responsibility to help businesses get back on their feet. And that's just an element of fairness. Uh, and that while we probably won't get to this point, that ideally you'd want businesses to be at least emerged from this as close to as the same condition as they were when they entered this crisis. Recognizing that that probably won't be the case, um, but we think the government should help um, get as close to as possible. And, and quite frankly, there are a lot of good programs that have been put in place, but there's a lot of restrictions, even the Main Street Lending Program that you know is, is set to be formally uh, opened up. I mean, the Fed has introduced the program, but it's not yet available for, um, for companies to avail themselves to probably over the next couple of days. Has a lot of restrictions in regards to one, real estate's not covered by it. And two, a lot of retailers won't be because of the leverage ratio requirements that are part of the program and or the credit rating requirements that are part of the program. Basically, you have credit. And that was one of the surprising things to me also just about the Main Street Lending Program was you have a, a challenge, which is a lot of retailers that, that were over levered to begin with. And it, it wouldn't seem logical to me that the conclusion to over leverage is additional debt. Um, so more debt on more debt, right? I mean, that's generally not a, a recipe for good, for good solid business growth. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that's that we, we really believe we're not saying that those programs aren't good programs. We're saying there's another layer of government support that's needed. Yeah. And quite frankly, it needs to be liquidity based, non debt based, grant based, um, there can be appropriate controls and restrictions placed upon it. There can be, it can be in the form of forgivable loans if you make, you know, if you do certain things, but it can't be limited to just small companies as PPP was. and can't just be payroll related as PPP for the most part was. Now it's 60-40. It was 75-25 when it was launched, but there's a, there's more that's needed. PPP is a great program, but it needs to be built upon as well. Right. And is, is part of that, also highlighting, you know, to uh, legislators, but also, you know, by definition also to their constituents, how important the brick and mortar retail ecosystem is to the U.S. economy. Like it's, it's, it's surprising, I think, to many people that it's one in four jobs. It's $6.2 trillion ecosystem contributor to U.S. GDP that you can't afford for big challenges to happen in retail without systemic problems impacting the uh, commercial debt market, the commercial mortgage market, um, employment. And so there's beyond just like the economic imperatives. So you don't want some of these companies to go down. There's real social imperatives here, like communities are yeah. built around offline retail. Have you, have you found that a, 
a challenging conversation to introduce into the into the public sphere, or is it kind of more intuitive to a lot of people? No, I I think uh, I think it's taken for I think the industry is taken for granted is yeah. is really the best way I would say it. You know, people it's become it's so ingrained in our psychology in in an ironic way because there's so much negative press often about the industry, right? It's it's dying it's a retail apocalypse etc 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 but yet what do people want to do when when as these orders are are relieved they want to go out shopping they want to go out to eat they want to i mean and 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 if you drive down the street out of your you know uh out of your your neighborhood what do you see shopping centers and retail and restaurants so it's, it's part of the community um and so in some ways because you see it so much and because it's part of your life, I think people just take it for granted. It's almost like, well, it's not an industry. It's just my neighborhood. It's part of, you know, it's part of what, how I live my life every day. And so I think that's one of the challenges that, you know, we have to overcome. Um, I think the, the fact that it is so significant yeah, and the, the aggregation of it, because people think of that small restaurant, they don't think when you aggregate that small restaurant and that small store, and that big store and, you know, put it all together and you got $6 trillion. That can't be right, but it is. Yeah. And, and I don't think that, um, you know, policy officials always quite get it. Uh, and you're right. You know, the cascading impact of, you know, just, or just a trillion dollars of debt that's underlying the shopping center industry. And if you had, you know, some reasonably large percentage or even a, you know, a meaningful percentage of that default in, in some ways, the cascading impact upon the financial markets was dramatic and, and a future of vacant shopping centers and, uh, and storefronts is not one that uh, communities, you know, would find desirable in any way. Right. We've shared that with policymakers, but it still is challenging. It, it definitely yeah. is. I mean, it was it was surprising to me, even as I was doing research on it, just, you know, beyond what you know, experientially that, you know, retail is kind of the, the fabric of, of many communities. It, it is the, the things, as you put it, that we take for granted, but also that it's so systemic, it's so interconnected, and that it's not just a retailer that's going bankrupt. It's you know, thousands, in some cases, tens of thousands of employees that could be losing their job and, and, and that income and the consequences downstream for the economy. And one of the things that, that struck me in, in thinking about the, the, the Retail Rescue Fund is this concept of, you know, what's really needed is there are, there are some retailers that were already struggling, right? They were already embattled and already imperiled by lots of issues that predated COVID. But there's a lot of otherwise viable retailers. And what seems especially hard right now is that capital markets are so frozen. It's hard for these retailers to raise equity, to raise debt. And how do you unfreeze those, those capital markets? How do you make it attractive for equity investors to, to, to get money moving again, to kind of um, to just restart um, these retailers so they can get to the other side of this crisis, right? Like the issue is you don't want lots of bankruptcies happening all at once and in the process, taking down otherwise viable retailers that do not and should not go bankrupt. How do you think about restarting equity and debt capital markets for the retailers themselves? You know, that's a hard one because I think what happens is, is, you know, the industry gets painted with a very broad 
brush, right? And and those you know retailers and brand names that have that were challenged, and as you you know appropriately point out, bef- before this happened, um, you know, and I do think we were turning the corner a little bit around that narrative. I think that that was starting to change, um, but then this happened, and I do think there has been uh, some hesitation uh, in you know, looking at one sector, particularly some of, you know, some of the large retailers that are brand names that, you know, we, we all know um, and we're challenged and saying, well, that's all retail. And so, and you've seen stock market valuations and, and resistance to capital and so forth as a result of that. I just think we got to continue to tell the story. And I think it's, I think it's an industry thing and I think it's an individual company you know, thing that they have to, you know, they really have to get ahead of it and say, well, no, that's not us. This is what we're about. And this is our, you know, our, our value proposition. And I, I do think it's, it's interesting because you really do see retailers across a broad spectrum that, you know, are successful. So, and, and the way they're successful, you know, is different obviously the Walmarts and, and, and the targets were, are successful. You know, they provided essential retail. They have such a large physical footprint. They are able to, you know, deal with that last mile. You have the apples of the world that were successful because they, you know, were cool and innovative and they provide a certain experiential element where you can interact with the, the product. But then you have something like a, you know, a TJX, which is, you know, was widely, you know, successful and, and is as well, which, you know, quite frankly, didn't really have much of a, a digital presence, but it provided an experience in a different way, in a treasure hunt way, right? And they were able to tell their story and as a result were successful with their customers and with the market because of that. And, and I think every retailer has to, you know, be able to demonstrate what makes them unique. And it's not all about technology. I mean, it just isn't because I got a cool a cool app or a cool website. And it, a lot of it has to do with service and merchandise and differentiation in different levels. And I think now you have this whole level of COVID-19 and, and, and safety and health um, aspects that'll also be a way to differentiate yourself. Yeah, and it just seemed, you know, when I was, when I watched the the ad, it was it's it's interesting because you, you said it is something that people take for granted, and in some ways it seems like ICSE is trying to solve a collective action problem, right? Which is you have lots of constituents in this ecosystem, and um, all of them, and frankly, every 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 American that cares about the economy should be rooting for the, the survival of this ecosystem, but in the consumer's mind, it almost feels less identifiable to say, let's save retail than let's save airlines. We all know what airlines are and we think about it as, you know, the companies, we understand it, seems like a thing, but it's a fraction the size. Well, it's, more, it's more definable and that's why, in, you know, it's a, it's a very identifiable, you know, specific number of carriers, et cetera, where retail, uh, is just so big and there's so many brands and so much uh, diversity and and you know in the ad you know, we you know, we we use the phrase your business i mean it is everybody's business i mean you know whether it's the you know the starbucks or the local coffee shop or the local dry cleaners or the hair salon or the grocery store or the mall or what but that's, that's your business i mean it's the 400 billion dollars that's generated by this 
industry and local taxes, you know, what is that fund? I mean, it funds all the infrastructure these communities rely upon. It, it, it funds public safety uh, and first responders. I mean, that's, it's a huge part of the day-to-day life of America. And I, and it clearly is taken for granted um, because it's always been there. And it only, you know, people only recognize when it's not there. You recognize, oh, that's, that store's vacant. And I, you know, God, you know, I've been going to that restaurant for 10 years. I'm so sorry that they didn't make it. Right. Well, you know, that's, and that impacts your life and, and, your, and the way you conduct your life on a day-to-day basis. Well, Tom, this has been so interesting. Thank you for sharing these, these thoughts and, you know, I wish you the best of luck with the, with the retail rescue fund. And I think it's a, it's a fantastic idea. And if we can ever be supportive, obviously let us know at fifth wall because we're rooting for it too. Uh, well, thank you, friend. And it's been, it's been great to be on with you. And uh, I hope everybody has a wonderful day. All right. Thanks, Tom. Appreciate it. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Fly on the Wall. All of these episodes and more are available on our YouTube channel. To learn more about Fifth Wall, visit our website at www.fifthwall.com.